Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. It is our pleasure today to welcome one of the most influential personalities in UK sport, Baroness Sue Campbell. Having competed at international level in athletics and netball, Sue embarked on a career that now spans almost half a century, combining her love for sport with a passion for developing others. An early career as a PE teacher and university lecturer was followed by a succession of senior leadership positions. Chief Exec of the National Coaching Foundation, co-founder and chief exec of the Youth Sport Trust, government advisor, House of Lords crossbench peer, and from 2003, a decade as chair of UK Sport, presiding over Team GB and Paralympic GB's incredible performance at the London 2012 Olympic Games. Sue is currently director of women's football at the FA. And in recognition of her outstanding service to sport, Sue was this year appointed Dane Commander of the Order of the British Empire. Baroness Sue Campbell, it's a real privilege to be able to speak to you today. Thank you so much indeed for, for joining us. I wondered if I might start with your formative years. Sport has evidently played a pivotal role throughout your life. Where did your love for sport begin and how did it shape you as a person growing up? You know, I, I, don't, I don't kind of remember where it began because it began at the beginning, I think, if you know what I mean by that. I don't have... I, I, was, I was naturally high energy, uh, very high energy youngster. Uh, I think to keep me busy, they used to throw me out the door. Um, so I, you know, my earliest recollections of playing football in the in the street with with the boys, no other girls, uh, going roller skating with Brian Carrier, climbing trees, falling out of them, breaking arms. Um, I was just feral, really. I just loved being out, out of doors. And, and, and even now, you know, under the pressure that we're all under, a different way of life, my recreation, my recreation of me happens in the out of doors. Uh, and, and I think it's a theme that's run right through my life. So in terms of sport, my parents were just fantastic. You know, every, every opportunity that I asked for, I went, I, I went skating. I looked like Popeye's girlfriend. I don't know if anybody remembers Popeye, but little spindly legs carrying me around on my skates. And, uh, you know, was, I was never going to be elegant and sort of become a great ice dancer, but I thought I was for a while there. Um, so just everything, I learned to swim in bitterly cold water at Highfields Outdoor Pool. Oh, never forget it. I learned to hit tennis balls when I was little. Um, I could run like the wind. I won everything in terms of races at school, primary school. Uh, and I played centre forward in the boys' football team at primary school. I didn't realise I was playing with boys. I was that naive. I thought everybody played. I just, you know, so I... I, I Sport was just everything. I loved it all the way through my early years. And then um, I discovered I was reasonably good at it. Went to secondary school, didn't do football. Broke my heart, but never mind. Um, started to play netball and hockey. Got into the county teams in both. Uh, again, loved it. Uh, and, you know, went on to be an international netball player, international junior athlete. Um so it's been a it, it was kind of born in me, I think, and, and nurtured by two very, very wonderful parents. I've heard you speak about your parents very fondly previously, but were they two key role models in your life? Yeah, very different. 
mum um, wasn't a typical mum in the sense of her age, uh, not her age in terms of her years, but in the way she lived her life. She was quite entrepreneurial. I mean, you know, she she started off life as a, a hairdresser, went to be an apprentice in 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 Nottingham. We lived in Long, she lived in Long Eaton. And it cost her three shillings a week on, on, on the bus. And she only earned two and sixpence in those days. So she had to be subbed. And then um, Mr. Smith, who was the guy who, who she was apprenticed to, said, it's time for you to go out on your own. And I've got a picture, which I fondly keep next door, which is her first hairdressing shop, which was upstairs in Long Eaton Marketplace, just, just big enough for one customer. And within, I don't know, four or five years, she had four shops um she was very entrepreneurial worked incredibly hard had jilly my older sister then me um but was a great mum you know food was really important meat and two veg you know it was no choice i only liked chips egg and chips is all i wanted to eat anyway i used to get meat and two veg whether i liked it or not um uh yeah dad um i was just a brilliant people person um left school early like my mum they both skived off school early um started off life as a butcher's delivery boy uh and ended up running mum's shops in the end as the sort of md of the shops um and the thing that will always live with me is how just brilliant he was with any person he met regardless of their station in life what they did who they were everybody loved him he was he was a delight so, you know, I learned different things. I, I guess I, the thing that they both gave me was a strong sense of it's okay to be you. I can't explain that to other people, but, you know, I was difficult to manage. I was high energy. I was a bit naughty. I didn't do particularly well at school, but I never felt put down. I never felt undervalued. Uh, and I always remember my taking the worst report I'd ever had in my life to my father. I won't give you the whole story, but um, he, when eventually I read the true story to him, I told him a pack of lies the first time I read it, and he said, I don't think that's true. Would you like to read me the real one? So I read him the real one, and I, I tried to sort of, you know, crocodile tears, tried to sound terribly sorry for myself. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm never going to be any good, am I? And he said, you will be whatever you want to be. You just haven't decided what it is yet. And those words still in my head, you know, when I, what was I, 14? Um, so, yeah, he had a profound effect on me, as did my mum. They both did. They really gave you the freedom to grow up, it sounds like. Yeah, that, and, you know, I, I loved sport. And my father was fantastically supportive, but never pushy, never pushy. And, and, you know, when things didn't go well, as they don't always in sport, and... I, when I was sort of early years, secondary school, I was a pretty good discus. So I could throw anything a distance, and just long levers and very quick. I wasn't huge, but I could throw things miles. And uh, I took up discus throwing and I went to the English schools. And every time I'd go, I'd try too hard. And uh, if anybody who knows discus throwing, if you, you, you're trying too hard, your arm locks and the discus goes out the sector. And the fourth time I came back, having flunked again, I threw all my stuff in the bin as I walked up the drive my father said to her mother I think you'd better go <laughs> I think this is one for me and I walked in and I I'm never planned that's it I'm finished I don't even you know you can imagine can't you I went on a rant and um he sat me down and he said look your mum and I don't get you know we want you to do well but it doesn't matter you know but 
and, and I've heard this expression many times since, and he didn't say it in these words, but essentially what he said to me was, you can be history or you can make history, and the choice is entirely yours. And I've said that to many people. You know, when when you meet massive disappointment, you can you can, you know, let it beat you, or you can suck it up and say, no, damn it, I'm gonna. So I trained really hard and the next year I won the All England Schools. So I said, it's all right, you know, I've got to write a book someday with these stories. <laughs> wise words, they clearly worked. Yeah, they were, they were wise words. <laughs> Evidently, that love of sport that you had throughout your childhood that was nurtured by your your parents, and then developed into, into your desire to educate and develop others. What was it that inspired you to pursue a career in education? Uh, I'd love to say some great calling, um, but it was actually my PE teacher who told me, um, asked me when I was in my fourth, uh, sort of my, what would I be, uh, fourth year at secondary, um, you know, what are you going to do with your life? because you're such a talented sportswoman. And I said, oh, no idea. And she said, why don't you become a PE teacher? I said, what does it involve? And she said, going to PE college three years. And she said, and, you know, it's just all you do is play sport. I said, oh, sounds good. So I'm afraid that's how I got into it. Um, and uh, it made me work a bit harder at school and get the necessary O-levels and A-levels and things. So I went to PE college and uh, I loved it. Oh, my goodness. I mean, talk about heaven. You know, you went from swimming to hockey to netball to, and then there was a bit of anatomy and, you know, these other, got through those and then off you go again doing more sport. I, I absolutely loved it. But I had no, I had no real concept of, we were, we were brilliantly trained as teachers, but I had no concept of the power of education until I went to teach in Mossside. And Mossside was my first teaching job and probably... A turning point in my life to be honest um you know I thought I went there you know with my clean shoes and my bright sparkly tracksuit thinking my job was to teach netball and hockey in winter and athletics and tennis in the summer but these were not normal kids these kids weren't too keen on anything I wanted to offer um and slowly I began to realize that actually my job was to teach children and the tool I had were these sports and activities, but that wasn't the end. That wasn't the point. The point was, could I help them be better in life using the tool that I understood? So I became, I, I always say that was the, the moment when my life changed in that I'd always understood sport for sport. I'd never understood the power of it to develop other people, to develop life skills, to develop resilience and you know, all of these things I'd just taken for granted and sort of absorbed them. But suddenly at Moss Side, I realised just how powerful sport could be to change lives. And what is it about sport? Why is it so powerful? It's a great question. And I, I think for young people and, and for older people, it provides a whole range of experiences which are not cerebral. I mean, there is a massive part if you, you know, you start to become an elite athlete and you're playing in a team game. Of course, there's a massive amount of thinking and decision making that goes on. But initially, it's this sort of ability to express yourself and to engage in the world in a different way. I think it's like music. I think they both speak to people in a different way. And I think if you're a kinesthetic like I was, you learn by doing. Sport is a really wonderful way to learn about yourself. 
and it teaches so many great lessons. Uh, you know, that, that, that first group that uh, I met at, at Wally Range, you know, th these were the most feared girls in, in school. And one of them was, you know, already earning a living on the streets of, of Manchester and had a police order, as they were known in those days. And here was I going to teach them netball. Well, uh, what, what, what was that going to do? And they didn't want to do it. So I asked them what they liked doing. They said dancing. I won't go through the whole story, but I allowed them to come and dance to whatever music they wanted. This youngster that was the most feared individual turned out to be a great leader. With a little bit of help, she became a really good coach and teacher. They became really successful. She went from being on the stage as the worst kid to being on the stage being, you know, clapped because we'd won competitions and she'd led it and... I learned what it was to empower a young person through sport, and in this case, dance, and to watch it help them grow self-esteem, self-confidence, self-worth, and to actually say, do you know, I'm okay. And for some youngsters, they don't get that in an academic environment. Doesn't mean that academic kids don't love sport, of course they do, but it, it, it also can speak to youngsters that other things can't reach. And that's the lesson that I learned there. And in light of that, do you think that physical education in our schools today is fit for purpose? No, I don't. I feel it's massively undervalued by politicians of all hue, not any particular ones. I think, it, ironically, it's really understood in our public schools as having value, but in our state schools, the the emphasis is is more and more and more on getting kids through exams. And I understand that, and I, I'm not against that. But there is this body we live in for all of our lives, and we have to be in touch with it. You know, that's what makes it different from music or art or anything else. This thing that you are born in lives with you forever. And how it feels, how you feel about it, is massively, massively important. You know, whether it's wanting to look attractive, whether it's wanting to stay away from heart disease or, you know, it's massively important. So physical education should be what it says on the tin. It should be about educating children as to why the value of keeping healthy, keeping well, keeping active, not necessarily the way we teach it now. So I, I think there is, it's grossly undervalued. The only politician that truly, truly understood the power of sport to affect real change was Nelson Mandela. You know, that when he walked out to present that Springbok jersey, in that Springbok jersey to present the World Cup at the rugby final when South Africa won the World Cup at rugby, knew exactly what he was doing. Because that Springbok jersey was a sign of white South Africa. And here he was, the black president, walking out in that shirt saying, what I want is a rainbow nation. I don't want white and black. I, don't, I just want a rainbow nation where everyone values each other. He absolutely, I don't know if you've ever seen his quote, but it, it is, I use it frequently, you know, sport has the power to change lives. It has the power to spread hope where there was once despair. It's more powerful than governments to build society and, and collaboration. You know, those are incredible words and he meant them. We've somehow failed to get that over. And our kids are less fit, less active. 
We have a more sedentary lifestyle. We spend hours staring at a flipping computer, she says, staring at a computer. But, you know, we have, we just, activity is such a fundamental part of human beings. And it doesn't mean you've got to play sport. Just get out and walk, get out and jog, get out and swim. You know, it's, it's massively important, particularly for girls, I think. I want to reflect on some of that because when I look at your career history, you've clearly dedica- dedicated your your whole career to that purpose of developing people through sports. Chief Executive of the Youth Sport Trust, you set up the school sports partnership, you advisor to the Department for Culture, Media and Sport and, and Department for Education and Skills in the early 2000s, Chair of UK Sport, leading to a hugely successful 2012 Olympic Games. And now, of course, driving change in women's football and football more broadly. Of that rich history, what provides you with the proudest moments and why? Oh, my goodness. I've been asked that so many times. You know, it goes from... I have a picture on my wall here with Sally, who's a special needs youngster in an evening dress at a London hotel, uh, the Savoy. Um, You know, standing with me on a stage with people giving a standing ovation. So, so there are those moments, you know, Sally, who who had become an elected mute because of things that were happening at home, chose not to speak, came on a, a camp we were running, a little bit of help and a lot of attention and love, started to speak and uh, just was, uh, it was watching a human soul unlock itself and realize what it could do and she stood on a stage in the Savoy in front of I don't know 300 very very wealthy folks and she gave this wonderful little speech I'll never forget as long as I live so there are those moments those real personal where you know that along with your colleagues you've allowed a young person to fulfill their potential and be what they can be. There's there's nothing replaces those moments. And then you've got these sort of historic, you know, Super Saturdays and Thriller Thursdays at the Paralympics and, and the most incredible opening ceremony at the Olympics where six, six elite athletes handed their torches to six young people who ran round and lit the, the, the torch. And, and that moment of those six young people carrying that Olympic torch was like UK Sport and the Youth Sport Trust merging into one moment for me um you know everything i believed in just there in front of my eyes you know sporting excellence and the youth of the world showing the way it was it was fantastic and then at, at football you know i've i've seen both i've seen those incredible moments of individuals realizing what they can be and, you know, going to the World Cup with, with the women, not last summer, the summer before now, and being part of sort of almost the birth of women's football. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, we're standing on the shoulders of a lot of people who've pioneered the game for many years, but to see it suddenly, you know, 11.7 million people watching it, to see it recognised, respected, understood for the first time... So there, there are there have been huge sort of almost historic moments, if you like, and there's been very, very personal moments that will always stay with me um, forever. I think that's a really interesting reflection. I look back at personal experience and, and, and very much see the same. And I think leaders often reflect, don't they, on, on those notable successes, 
those 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 big events. And actually, it's often the small day-to-day moments when you make that tangible change to individuals' lives that can be just as, if not more, powerful. Yeah, no, I, I think that's what motivates me. You know, I don't... The big moments are wonderful, and, and they're, but they're a culmination of all those little moments. You know, it, what's happened in women's football is not... It's just a culmination of a lot of effort, coaching, supporting, mentoring encouraging you know I, I there's an expression that i hear i've used many times which is your job as a leader is, is to give roots to grow and wings to fly you know so you you've got to make people feel safe secure uh loved valued understood and then don't get in their way let them go you know and, and sometimes we get that confused between control and but to begin with, you've got to get them anchored. They've got to know where home base is. They've got to know if they're in trouble, it's you they come to. All of those things that says, I'm your roots, okay, you're safe. Now go try, go fly. And, you know, they crash a few times, some of them, and some of them immediately fly, and some fly high, and some don't fly too high, but they fly. Um, and and that's that's the excitement for me of, of coaching and mentoring people. You talk about crashing, and obviously, as leaders, we all crash at some point. Can you think of any particular examples of where you got it wrong, and and what did you learn from those experiences? Lots. And what I would say is most of them were the best learning moments of my life. You know, I think you learn more from what you get wrong than you ever do from what you get right. Um, I know what we get right, we get a good old slap on the back, and we feel good about it. And when you get it wrong, there's that awful moment of, um, but it's ref- it's reflecting on those that's helped me be what I am. So, you know, everything from skiving off school to go and play football at a different school when I was, you know, seven, um, <laughs> to, you know, throwing soap flakes in the fountain when I was at PE college and getting chased by the police. I mean, you know, there's a thousand things I think of that were sort of irresponsible, silly, and yet it was it was me finding me. And all of those things help inform who you are. And, and one of the most memorable and, and one that changed who I was was when I went to Loughborough I thought I was a big cheese, really. You know, I was the first woman on the staff, so I thought I must be the best woman in the world. So I was a bit, I was more than a bit sure of myself. And um, I was coaching the netball team and uh, we were winning everything. And one night, uh, Jimmy Greenwood, who was the coach of the rugby team, came to watch me coach. And I thought he'd come to watch me so he could learn from me. So I'm showing off at 100 miles an hour. I'm really giving it some. And I'm a real didactic coach, I'm telling you know, my high energy, giving it all I've got. And afterwards he said, would you like to come and watch me coach? I said, oh, yeah. And he's quiet and he's going over groups. And I think, oh, this chap's not very good. We go to the pub afterwards, we have a drink. And he said, what do you think? I said, I think you need to give it a bit more, you know. So I give him all the big spiel. And he and I said, what do you think about me? He said, interesting. I thought, oh, good, he's learned something. So said, shall we do it again next week? I said, yeah. So off I, next week I really show off and I know I'm really going for it. I go out to watch him coach, and he said, I thought about what you said last week, and it's okay with you, it's not really who I am, but you can come over and listen to what I'm saying. So I walked over, and Clive Woodward, whose name you may know, was in one of the groups, and he said to the group, um, you're two points down, there's five minutes left, there's the defence, what would you do? 
I thought, God, this bloke's terrible. Right? He doesn't even know to tell them what to do. So I go to the pub and I said, look, you can get videos and books, you know, Jim. What I didn't realise was that Jim had written most of the videos, <laughs> most of the books and made most of the videos and turned out to be probably one of the finest rugby union coaches in the world, not just at Loughborough. And, uh, and, and as he gets up to go to the, pot, to the bar, he says to me, um, where do you sit when the game starts? A bit of a silly question, that. I thought, this chap's terrible. Anyway, he came back. I said, well, I'll sit on the bench. He said, I said, so who makes all the decisions when they're on the court? I said, well, the players do. Hmm. He says, when you practice that then? And I went, pardon? He said, when do they practice making decisions? Because you make them all. And I went, oh, my God. And then we started to talk. And talk about falling from the height of thinking you're the world's best to thinking you're the world's worst. Um, that was a classic moment in my life. But it was a massive turning point in me, both as a, as a coach and then as a manager. You know, the message was the questions you ask are more important than the instructions you give. That was Jim's... Jim's if you know what question to ask, people will work it out for themselves. If you're always telling them, how do they learn to decide? And again, you know, in terms of me as a manager, I could think of a thousand of those where I've really made an ass of myself. Excuse my language if I should. I shouldn't probably say that on this, you know. Um, but, you know, I really have made a complete idiot of myself. But that was a classic. Um, I can think of lots of them. Again, I could write a book on those. <laughs> five words, five words. I, I wondered if I could draw it back and again reflecting on some of your more recent moments throughout your career. As I've meant, as I uh, mentioned previously, chair of UK Sport for ten years, leading up to the Olympic Games, and now as director of women's football at the FA, you clearly have extensive experience in driving change. From your experience, then, what are the common barriers to that, to promoting change, and how do you overcome them? Well, change is a challenge because most people are comfortable with status quo. That, that's why it stays as status quo, because actually somewhere there's a balance where it's actually comfortable for a lot of people. So to be an agent of change, you've got to know how to help people see a new way. And you can't bludge a new way through that. You have to, you have to find ways to demonstrate what the new way could be. So... At UK Sport, for example, you know, first question I asked when I went in is we were 10th in the medal table. I asked my colleagues, was 10th good? And they all went, yeah. You know, we, we, we were 26, two Olympics ago, so 10th is good. I said, well, that's really interesting because I've never wanted to be 10th in my life. I said, you know, why can't we be, why can't we be higher than that? Who's above us? And they started to say, well, you know, the French, well, why are the French better than us? Oh, they have a better talent system than us. So I said, why? So, well, they do. I said, well, why? Why, why, haven't we, why haven't we developed one? Well, we haven't got the resources. Well, maybe we need to find them. So what about the Germans? Oh, well, you know, the Germans. Da, 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 da. And we went through the whole thing. And I got, I got right all the way up to Australia. And I said, well, come on, you know, small population, massive travel difficulties, how come they're better than us? And they said, well, the sun shines in Australia. And I said, that's it, guys. I give up on you lot. If you think that's why we can only come 10th. And so I had to begin to help people have a vision that was bigger than they had dreamed of. So the first thing is get vision clarity. 
you know. So I did that at UK Sport, done the same with women's football. Why are we where we are? Why haven't we got a professional league? Why, 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 why? I mean, I irritate people to death when I start a job because I'm asking why all the time. So get that, get that vision and get everybody to buy into it, everybody to believe it's possible, and then stay constant to that purpose. Don't let yourself be pulled left and right. You've got to stay constant to that person. Once you've got some sort of consensus that that's purpose people will sign up to, then stay really constant to it. And don't let things bump you off, off track. And then it's about growing your people so that they're not just dreamers. <laughs> they're not just looking at the dream, but they begin to learn how to get there. So you start to provide that, that support that says, so what's your role in helping us get to the top of this mountain? And, and how can I help you be better? How can I help you be better and you be better? And by the time you've got everybody just working a little bit better, um, clear vision, constancy of purpose, great people, and then ultimately it's great decision-making about which direction of travel you go. You know, not, not in terms of the vision, but day-to-day -day decisions. And, and those, it's about, you know, when I'll give you an example. When working in women's football, we, I, I think, probably, decided that we should go to a full-time professional league. Why? Uh, because I saw the pace of change of the women's game. I felt we would get left behind. There were two or three clubs, Manchester City, Arsenal, Chelsea, had already gone full-time professional, but the rest were beginning to be, you know, fodder in terms of the games. The product didn't look good most of the time, except when they met each other. So I wanted a stronger product. And uh, uh, some of the clubs... So I started, I put out this license program and everybody kept telling me this won't work. Clubs aren't going to do this. This won't work. And I kept saying it has to work if we're going to move football. And I remember sitting in, well, not sitting, I was standing in a meeting in St. George's Park with all the clubs there, people like Doncaster Bells, who'd been a fundamental part of the game, who knew they couldn't make this step into this said to me, you're destroying our game. You're destroying everything we've worked for. You're going to destroy Doncaster Bells. And I said, look, if I was sitting where you're sitting, I'd be so cross with me. I'd be just as angry as you are. But I can't make the decision that's right for you. I've got to make the decision that's right for the game. I've got to do what feels like it takes us to the next stage. And if you can't go on that journey, I know that's brutal, but that's reality. So we went to a full-time professional league and Donnie Bell's dropped out of the two top leagues. Still doing a great job, nurturing young people, still working at a level that works for them as a community hub. They probably won't ever make the professional leagues. Was that the right decision? Well, the league has thrived. We have a really good product. We've brought in the biggest sponsorship partner in the history of women's sport. We've just which hasn't been announced yet, pulled off a huge TV deal for next season. So was it the right decision? It was for moving the game forward. It wasn't particularly right for Doncaster Bells. So the point I'm making there is, is to be an agent of change doesn't always mean you can take everyone on the journey, doesn't always mean you can be popular. And sure enough, you're going to have people sticking pins in effigies of you <laughs> in different parts of the universe. But 
you've got to have the courage to do what's right for the big picture. You know, sometimes was I sure the whole way through that that I was right? Probably not. <laughs> there were moments of self-doubt because you wouldn't be a human being if you didn't have moments of self-doubt. But in the end, what's happened to the game has been proven to be the right decision. You spoke about some of the core leadership competencies that many of us would recognise. Vision, purpose, maintaining focus, what we would call in the Army, selection and, maintain, uh, selection and maintenance of the aim, uh, encouraging making decisions. I want to look back at purpose because I've heard you speak before about moral purpose. I wonder if you could expand on that. What do you mean by moral purpose and why is it important? Well, I, I the first time it really um, resonated with me, I, I guess I've always had a strong sense of moral purpose in terms of using sport as a vehicle to improve lives. And so when I grew the National Coaching Foundation from... Uh, uh, you know, uh, a base of two people. And then I grew the Youth Sport Trust. I guess unwittingly, I was I was growing it in a culture where the moral purpose was also the driver. It was almost the purpose was the purpose. It, there wasn't a business purpose that we had to try and find a moral purpose. It was, it was a moral purpose. And then when I went to UK Sport, it was the first time I'd been in an organisation where business purpose was everything. And business purpose was government gave us money, lottery gave us money, and there was an expectation in as a result you'd, you'd get medals. Right? So the more money you got, the more the expectation was you'd get more medals. And I started to, uh, I, as the new chair, I used to walk around the building uh, every day with a cup of coffee and pick off a few people to talk to. So what do you do and what motivates you and... You know, and find out, you know, are you married, got any kids, you know, just stuff. Because I think it's really important people think you're valued as a person, not just as a person doing a job. And I'd say, so what do you think about, you know, all these medals? And, you know, and say, oh, well, you know, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> you think, hmm, this doesn't inspire me with people who feel fired up to go and get it. So I started to think about, why is this different from everything I've experienced before? And I thought, because it doesn't have a moral purpose. All it's got is a bottom line, if you like. And the bottom line is government lottery give you this, you produce these medals. And to, to some people, that was enough. But for the majority of people, that was kind of, yeah, it's OK. But it wasn't why I get up in the morning. You know, I got up in the morning because I got paid. And yes, I was happy to be part of it. But it wasn't a sense of... Can I bring something different here? Can I find some energy and kind of be creative and kind of find different ways of doing things? So I kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And eventually one day I said, right, I want to tell you we've got a new purpose. And they all went, what do you mean? I said, well, you think the purpose is to win medals. I said, I don't like my fire, you know. And you can see them all go, what are you going to do with us? <laughs> I said, I want us to focus on something different. I said, I want us to say to ourselves that whether you live in Glasgow or Belfast or Cardiff or London or anywhere else, that if you're a youngster with the desire, you, you have the desire to be the best in the world, you have the capability, you have the work ethic, you're not going to be put off. I never want you to turn and look at me at the Olympic Games and say, if only. If only I'd had a better coach. If only I'd had more warm weather training. If only that equipment was better. If, if, if. So what we are 
is we are working for those people. That's what we're doing. And we're going to remove all if onlys. We're going to, we're going to clean this system so there's not one if only left. That's what we're, and every job in this place is going to be chasing that if only. So it became if only. And everybody used it all the time. People would come to me and say, I've got an idea. I'd say, go on then. And, you know, even simple things like reception came to me and said, can we talk to you? I said, yeah. He said, this doesn't inspire, you know, when you walk in the door. If you want to have that sort of feeling of if only, can we, can we change reception? I said, do what you like. He said, it's going to cost money. I said, go on, get on with it. They turned the desk around. They put TV up. They went and got... Um, Chris Boardman's bike off him and stuck it on a wall and, you know, the first man to win a goal. I mean, it was like it captured people's imagination. So to me, moral purpose is when you can inspire people to a cause that is bigger than the bottom line. The bottom line's always there and we wouldn't cuss as you know, we won the medals we were meant to win. But how do you motivate people? And, you know, when I went to the FA and I addressed the FA council, 80 gentlemen, mostly gentlemen and I said I just want to be really honest with you I haven't come here for football and you could see this oh my god who is this naughty woman I said I've come here because I want to change the lives of girls and women using the most powerful sport brand that we've got called football and that and they got it they got it they sat there and it took them a minute and they went well she thinks we're powerful. <laughs> she thinks we've got this powerful brand. And I said, we, we have. We've got this amazing brand. We could change millions of lives. If I'd gone there and said, I'm going to get more kids playing football, and everybody gone, oh, yeah, fine. But that more, and, and you'll see the new statement coming out of the FA about the whole of our organisation now. It's all around moral purpose. How do we use the game to change society in which we live? I believe that motivates people who come to work every day. They don't just want to come to work to count numbers or they, they want to feel they've got a bigger purpose. Um, you know, and, and that's not difficult to find in your in your world, but in some worlds it is hard to find, you know. It definitely resonates and it's wonderful to hear you speak like that. We'll come on to football and the Football Association in a minute, but do you think there is a... Do you think the moral purpose is lacking from sport more broadly today? Well, I think that the challenge you've got is, is that once a game crosses a certain barrier and becomes a business. <laughs> so, you know, right now, women's football is still a sport. Uh, the moment you cross over into where salary wages are huge and now you're owned by multi-billionaires and it's all about business. I think that becomes more difficult. Um, so do I think that the majority of sports care deeply about the impact they have on society? I think uh, most sports do, but I think the pursuit of excellence can become an end in itself if you're not careful, as opposed to a way of inspiring young people to realise that you can achieve excellence. So I think it's a balance. I, I don't know that I'd say it's as good as it should be, but there are an awful lot of good people doing a lot of good work. So I think it's, it depends where you look. <laughs> You've touched on the position that football is currently in, and particularly the men's game at the moment. 
And I note the context of Greg Clark's recent resignation as uh, chairman of the Football Association in light of what were deemed inappropriate and offensive comments to the Select Committee on, on, on race, gender and sexuality. Would this suggest a cultural issue at play in the game or, or indeed in the Football Association itself? I think we've, we, in the time, when I say we, the time I've been at the FA is now four and a half years. And in that time, I've seen a massive shift in our, in our approach to things. So our senior management team is now 50% female. Uh, we have um, a reasonable ethnicity uh, mix, not enough. Um, we certainly have... Uh, people with different sexual orientation on that board and we're all very open with each other. Uh, it's a good team. It's a good organisation. Uh, it hasn't got it all right. Um, I think we still have a lot of work to do. We've, we published a document two years ago called In Pursuit of Progress and, and we are pursuing progress and Black Lives Matter has certainly given that additional impetus. So... I don't think you can judge an individual's words or, or, or unfortunate selection of language to be an indicator that people in football are not aware of this issue and trying to do something about it. Um, and, I mean, to me, the irony is the chair, chairman, uh, Greg, has always been incredibly supportive of women's football. The examples he used and the language he used were really unfortunate. Um and I guess what that teaches us is the thing we all take for granted is our language. And it's so easy to offend. And, and so easily, you know, when you, you choose a bad example or you use a word that perhaps in 20 years, 30 years ago was an acceptable word, is no longer an acceptable word, how offensive it can be. And if you're in a public position, you can't afford to do that. That's, you know, you might you might make a mistake in a pub with friends and that's a different issue. Someone can correct you and sort you out. But just to be in a public environment like that, just you can't do it. So do, does the football, yeah, I mean, the FA's just launched a new uh, diversity leadership code for the professional game. It's had the support of the Premier League and the EFL, which is about encouraging our professional clubs to employ more women, more people from black and Asian minority ethnic groups um, uh, in, as coaches, as part of their performance teams, uh, as part of their management teams. We'll see how that goes. But we are trying to show that we're leading the way in this stuff. Uh, we're, by, you know, we're by no means perfect. And there are many things you could look at in the organisation which still need reform. But we are aware of it and we're all working at it. and. Um, as you know, cultural shift of that nature takes a long time. Absolutely. And given that change you've identified in the last four years, do you see the results of that filtering down through the organisation? Yeah, I mean, in terms of our um, pay gap, for example, between men and women and, and people from black and Asian minority ethnic groups uh, is really close. I mean, I, I think it would compare favourably with anybody else. If you look at the numbers of people being employed that are representative of the diverse community in which we live, I'd say we're doing okay. You, you can always challenge yourself. I think there are certain places where there are blocks in the system. So an example would be black coaches, male coaches, who've got the highest qualification but can't get into a job. 
But I think if you looked across, you'd find a lot of white coaches who've got their pro license can't either because the ceiling is it's not necessarily... I mean, I, I think it's really important we break that glass and let some of these coaches... Because, you know, that expression, uh, Raheem Sterling says, if you can't see it, you can't be it. It's really important that we get more... Uh, role models at the top of sport, both in administrative roles, in leadership roles, in coaching roles, in refereeing, for goodness sake. You know, we've still a lot of work to do, but I think we are determined to do it and we are making some progress. Whether we're making it quickly enough, I, you know, somebody else will have to judge that one. You spoke at the conference you kindly joined us on three or four weeks ago now um, on leading through crisis, which for our listeners we held in partnership with the foundation for leadership through sports and there you gave a really interesting perspective on vulnerability and the panel was in unanimous agreement of the importance of leaders showing vulnerability you gave us a a female perspective of how that isn't always easy particularly in a in a male dominated environment and i wondered if you could um if you could expand on that yeah i think the two things for me that separate you out as a a great leader as opposed to a good one is authenticity. You know, people have to believe you are what you are, not you're pretending to be something, but that you are that something. And, and part of that is, is being willing to share your own vulnerability, you know, those moments when it does hurt. And, and, and I'm not saying, you know, you have to pick your moments to do that, but I think people, people like to know that you care deeply enough that these things can hurt and that there are moments when you feel less than perfect. Uh, and I, I think that that allows other people to say it's okay to be less than perfect. You know, if the boss can be less than perfect, I can be less than perfect. And it just allows them to share those moments which aren't great. I think the hard part, as I, I found it for as a woman in leadership, is that Men, by their nature, don't show that easily. They don't show that vulnerability easily. It's kind of not the dumb thing. Women do tend to, and then get judged as being weaker. Um, so what happens is they become fearful of showing vulnerability because vulnerability means I'm not. people aren't going to think I'm good enough. But actually, that's about the, changing the environment to recognise that actually vulnerability is a human, you know, we're all vulnerable. We all have things that, that scare us, frighten us, you know, moments where we get things wrong. And, and it's important that that's part of you as a leader. But I think women find that really tough. And so what happens is they toughen up. And then those, those nuances of that sort of emotional intelligence get a bit blocked because they're now trying to be something that doesn't show that vulnerability, that is strong and isn't easily knocked off course, et cetera. And there's, a, there's an element of that that's important, but you've also got to be willing at times to say, I also, you know, don't feel perfect today and I'm not doing a perfect job. So I think you can be a strong, capable, outstanding leader and still be vulnerable. I would also like to talk about uh, followership because I, I heard a great quote you said at a previous conference when you said your leadership is only as good as your followership. And again, I wondered if you could expand on that because I don't think we speak enough about followership. And of course, they're two sides of the same coin. Well, 
there's a huge difference in my book between managing and leading. Managing, I call the science of the job. So that means I've got to be adept enough at budgets, strategy, smart sheets, she says with a sigh, um, you know, Gantt charts, all, all the stuff you've got. You've got to know that you know. If you're going to lead, if you're going to be a strategic leader and you're going to take people forward, you've got to be able to handle those things. And if you can't, you need somebody jolly good next to you who can do them and that you form a, you know, which is what I always do. I always put a really, really strong operational person right next to me who's way better than me on all of those things and keeps me on the straight and narrow because that's important. Leadership is a very different thing. It's a connectivity with people. It's an engagement that says, yeah, you've got that confidence that somehow I know what I'm doing. <laughs> But it, that isn't what will make you react. That isn't what will make you follow me. What makes you follow is a true sense that you're on a mission that they want to be part of and they want to join you. And so unless you can feel that, you know, if I, if I were to just manage, people will do what you tell them because they want to get paid and they, and, and they want to do what you tell them because that's part of doing your job. That isn't, that isn't followership. That's just getting on with the job. Followership is when people go that extra mile because they get the mission and now they step beyond what they could do to do more or they follow you to a place they're really quite scared about but they come with you because they kind of trust you know where you're going. That's leadership. And real true followership is when you get a sense not that people conform in any way to you, but have a got an enormous sense of you're the mission leader. I trust that, and I want to be on this mission. I want to be part of this. I want to go the extra mile to be part of this. And you can feel it. It's not. It's not a job description. It's not a PDR. It's not a Gantt chart. It's not a. It's a sense of there's something special happening here, and I want to be part of it. That's real followership. And people buy into that in a way that says, I'm going to follow you. Don't know where you're going, but I'm going to follow you. <laughs> and, and that's right back to your point about moral purpose, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It has to be, it has to be a strong sense of, you know, when I, when I first went into the FA, there were many people working in the Football Association who had very little sense of being valued, understood, and, and were quite resentful about what was going on. And I spent really good time helping them lift their head and look at what was possible. Not where we were, not all the challenges, not all the individual problems they faced, but where could we go if we set our mind on it? And I always describe it as when I arrived, we were on the beach and I looked and the mountain was covered in fog. And then slowly, bit by bit, that those people, those followers have followed me to the foothills. And now we can see the top of the mountain. And I can't get up there on my own. But with them, I can get to the top of the mountain. And that's the other thing about followership. It isn't that they are not empowered. They realize that this is their dream. This isn't yours. This isn't your mission. This becomes their mission. And now instead of you, there's an army of yous with the same mission. And now it all becomes doable. Because you can't do these things on your own. And that's leadership. That's leadership. So I'd, uh, I'd I'd like to finish with some quick fire questions, if I may. Uh oh. So here we go. 
Who is the best leader you've ever known? There's a few, really, but it has to be Nelson Mandela, right? I mean, how, how do you lead a country when you're locked in prison for 27 years? How do you do that? It defies any, any understanding, doesn't it? I mean, we think a leader is someone who's so visible, but he led through strength of purpose. That has to be very special. What has been your most enjoyable leadership position? I guess it has to be, to this day, UK sport. Because we delivered what we said we would. And it took 10 years. So it was 10 years of work to get to that point where we delivered everything we said we would. Yeah, UK sport. What is your biggest future leadership challenge? Uh, retirement. <laughs> the hardest one. Yeah. Finding out what on earth am I going to do with myself? Um, um, don't know. Don't know right now. Uh, in, in, in the middle of thinking things through, actually. And so from retirement all the way back to the beginning, in, in hindsight then, what advice would you give a young Sue Campbell, the PE teacher from Mossside? Oh, don't overplan. Follow, follow your passion, follow your heart. Go through doors that perhaps feel a little scary when you see them. And, and take the most out of every experience that you get and, and change as many lives, touch as many lives. It's arrogant to say you change them, but touch as many lives as you can on that journey. Sue Campbell, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. I would also like to say more broadly, thank you for your, your dedication, passion, and service to sports in this country and indeed wider society is genuinely inspirational stuff. My pleasure, thank you. Well, I hope you agree that was a fascinating insight from one of the giants of UK sport, Baroness Sue Campbell. So much to unpack there, but some, some highlights for me. Firstly, authentic leadership. It's about being true to yourself. Uh, secondly, followership. Uh, we talk a lot about leadership, but but as I said in, the, in our talk there, not enough about followership which are of course two sides of the same coin and and I love what Sue said in the conversation there about what makes you follow is a true sense that you are on a mission that you want to be part of thirdly moral purpose and it's about uniting people making it their mission not just yours and I think I think Sue touched on a really important issue there with moral purpose it's about inspiring people to a purpose that is bigger than the bottom line it's not just about turning up for work. It's not just about being the best you can be. It's about being part of something bigger, which really drives success. Sue also talked about the key characteristics of any good leader. Clear vision, consistency of purpose, great people and great decision making. If you want to be successful, however you choose to define that, if you want to make a difference, whether to an individual or wider society, you have to have passion and you have to have purpose. And that shone through for me in everything that Sue said. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast, visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership, or follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. <laughs>